one question I had, like Lollapalooza is, is still a thing, I guess. <laughs> I was just, I, as I was reading that, yeah, uh, I was like, is this going to this resonate? Is a reference. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it is a thing, and uh, it is the most mainstream musical f- music festival that exists right now, as far as I know. So, <laughs> really? way to be mainstream, Brian. <laughs> okay, because I mean, it's definitely a very Gen X phenomenon, and uh, but it's still, but it is, uh, it, it has continued, and because uh, this was a like a Jane's Addiction thing way back in the day, and then it, it was a festival that brought in a bunch of different kind of eclectic kinds of music, um. And then, like the idea of like Palooza as a suffix, I kind of went down that rabbit hole. Dude, I, I I was right there with you too, and I was like, "Is this maybe as durable as gate as a suffix? Maybe slightly less durable." Ooh, we need a Palooza gate, or is it gate Palooza? <laughs> there we go. <laughs> we go Why not both? But very different things. Very different things. Yeah. I would you rather go to? Would you? I think Palooza gate. Which is, which do you prefer, Palooza Gate or Gate Palooza? Gate Palooza sounds it, kind of like uh, like a multi like, all the yeah, ex- Oh yeah, I think it's like a scandal ridden administration. <laughs> it would be this is just like Gate Palooza. I isn't Gate Palooza like many different stages with different scandals in every stage? And like, oh man, go to the Pizza Gate stage. Those they absolutely <laughs> nuked it. That was just crushing crazy it. over there. Exactly, crushing it over there. Um, yeah, so I think I I would prefer to go, uh, but then I I kind of like uh, clearly. Palooza Gate is obviously the scandal that brings down all Palooza. I assume, right? I mean, we agree on this. <laughs> Got to be. Gotta all right, be. right. And then the other, like, uh, and I'm wondering if you went down this rabbit hole as well. The like validation versus verification. Did you get? Do you? Did you know that I? Did you know that I kind of like changed up on you as we were talking about this. It went from. Ooh. Yeah, it went from yeah. uh, validation Palooza to verification Palooza. Mm. And, I didn't notice that. And amazingly, this is something that people have got strong opinions about. I so I don't even I don't even know which is which. So anyway, here we are uh, at at Palooza Gate. Um, so I, I went with uh, with verification verification Palooza. So now I know we've taken more detail than anyone wanted to know. We come up with our dumbass titles. Like, can you jokers just like stick to Simpsons references and be done with it? Um, so we've got Greg and Rain here, and uh, we're talking about software verification and because i think there's a lot that is here and a lot that we that different folks have done certainly at oxide but we know well beyond oxide as well and i i wonder if maybe we could start greg with you and because uh, a a couple of months ago you were demonstrating for the team how you used uh tla plus to actually do some model verification of some software that you were working on. And the thing that I loved about this is you got there from a concrete issue that you were working on. So do you want to describe a little bit about the issue and kind of where you got to and, and how what model checking is and, and uh, how it was valuable for you? Yeah, sure. Um, there's, there's, a whole, there's a whole lot to unpack there. I wish it was only a couple of months. Believe it or not, it was all the way back in January uh, that we did the, the demo that you're thinking of. And uh, it's just been, been trying to implement all these things since then. But uh, yeah, so I have um, uh, been working for quite a while 
on various aspects of life migration of instances in our system. And last week's show, we talked about some of the, um, well, not we, I wasn't here, but y'all talked about some of the various uh, uh, aspects of what it takes to, to take a running virtual machine and move it from one virtual machine monitor to another, potentially on a different machine. Um, so there's, there's all the mechanical pieces of that. And I've worked on some of those, but lately I've been focused a lot on the um, on the orchestration process for this. So given that we uh, that we want to move a running VM from one compute sled to another, how do we get our control plane to coordinate all of that and stand up the appropriate VMM processes and get everything to invoke the right things at the right times and monitor all of the all the state and everything like that that uh, that needs to be monitored in order to to get one of these things moved over. Um, so the the process for doing this is is a pretty uh, gets to be a pretty gnarly distributed systems problem in in relatively short order. You've got two separate virtual machine monitors running around as part of your migration process. Those are both reporting status to two separate processes that we call the sled agents. These are the the processes that run one per compute sled that coordinate all of the activities on the sled. Those are reporting status back up to the Nexus, which is a separate application that is the doing all of the main control plane business logic and that has uh, that hosts all of the external Oxide API endpoints that you go and invoke. So you got all of these different things talking to each other. The Nexus is off talking to a database that it, uh, you know, to which it, it reads, to which it writes and reads, uh, and from which it reads the the state of individual instances, so that it can coordinate various uh, various things that are happening uh, and respond to API requests correctly. So you got all these different actors running around. They can crash at various times. They can go away at various times. Their responses to each other could be delayed by arbitrary amounts of time. Just standard, you know, concurrent, all, all kinds of interesting concurrency in there. So when I started designing the um, uh, the live migration procedure that the control plane runs, I, I, I did one draft and it was a pretty, you know, pretty shallow draft. Just here's generally what the steps look like. Okay, that looks pretty good. So I did a and second this draft, draft like and, in your yeah, notebook, right? Yeah, this is, is my notes. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so, so this was, no, this was the draft of the design document that turned into right, okay. one of our requests for discussion um so that for the so for you're the not yet writing code you're just kind of writing down okay yep. got it yep Yep, that's right. Yeah, so just trying to get all of this designed on paper so that you know I could I could put this into a dis, into a request for discussion and have folks at Oxide review it. So that because it's a lot cheaper, of course, to deal with design issues much earlier in the design process than hey, look, I implemented this thing and it's five thousand lines of codes and none of it's right, and the, well, so you know, the algorithm is fundamentally broken and and that sort of thing. Go ahead, Brian. We, so this is kind of an interesting, because I mean, I think that there are some things that you really need to just like get in and prototype to really iterate on. Mm -hmm. And then there are other things where you're just like, actually, you're just going to get in the trouble by, and when you get this distributed system and you got a lot of pieces moving and a lot of possible failure modes, getting in there and quote, just getting something working sometimes sends you off in the wrong direction because you act, if you, you really do need to, I think, sit down in your notebook and be like, what actually are the steps that needs to happen? What can go wrong in each of these steps? And you are almost disturbed by a prototype sometimes. Yeah, I, I think I think that can be true in some cases. And I think that for the um, for the sort of system that we're talking about here too, there's also just a lot of things that we know we knew upfront from other operations that we had <laughs> written and other code that we'd done. Uh, 
we, we knew that there were certain requirements that we were going to have to meet. So this gets into things like we use um, we, we use a scheme called distributed sagas to do uh, our to do certain long running operations in the control plane. And the idea is that you take a a complex task and you break it into individual units that are that can be done idempotently and that can be undone. And that allows you to set things up in such a way that you can guarantee that your entire task either completes or gets undone and the, the prior state uh, gets restored, um, uh, even in the face of your executor crashing in the middle uh, in the middle of what it is that you're trying to do. So we have a bunch of requirements around that that we knew we were going to have to uh, uphold. And I wanted to I wanted to be able to go through and say, yeah, every step of this migration procedure is going to um, going to uphold all of these properties that I know we're going to have to uphold because we like just talked about this a few when I was writing this a few weeks ago. Um, there had been a control plane meeting where we'd sat down and gone, yeah, we really got to be careful about this and make sure that this stuff's getting verified correctly for all of the things that we're writing. So yeah, there there was this this definitely had a lot of design upfront aspects to it because I knew that uh, there were there were a lot of things we had to get right and I definitely wanted to try to make sure that I was thinking them through correctly um, before trying to before trying to get get into having too much fun in the uh, in, in the code itself. Yeah, so, totally. Yeah, you gotta, I, no, you gotta no, know in the prototype and know in the waterfall and this is an mm -hmm. example of when you write on a waterfall. Yeah, so so when I when I started doing the design document for this, like and, and just making sure that I had what I thought was a reasonable thing in my head, like the I did like I said, I did a first draft of this and it was it was pretty straightforward and it looked it looked okay. So then I did a second draft where I started fleshing it out. And, and then I, I wanted to do like the thing that I was actually gonna put up for peer review. And and the third draft started out okay. But about halfway through, I'm, I, I pulled it up to look at it again. I, I still I still have this around. Um, about halfway through, it starts to to devolve into this long list of like to do xxx. <laughs> there is no way this design could possibly work. Here is an 11 step race condition involving three different sleds that causes us to leak the fact that we're migrating this instance and we never think it's running again. And here's a different 11 step race condition that makes it so that the instance is running in two places at once. And, and eventually, as I was looking at these, I realized, hey, wait a second, like a variant of one of these races is actually a problem that we have today. We have a bug where um, um, due to the actions of the uh, of the I mentioned the distributed sagas earlier, the saga that's responsible for creating and starting a new instance, it's possible to have a sequence where we that we invoke one of these and it starts your VM. And then the the control plane process that's doing this immediately crashes before it records that the VM was successfully started. But your VM is started. So then the guest software running in there shuts the VM down. Now it's supposed to be stopped. And we go back and replay the step that starts it because we didn't get to the end of that step yet. And now you have a VM that's running even though the last expressed user intent was, was that you were um, was to stop the virtual machine. So it, we, I, I remember, like, I came up with this on a Friday and came back on Monday and kind of, um, you know, started nagging some people about, hey, is this a real thing? Have I identified a real issue? But that was about the point where I decided, all right, you know what? 
thinking about it really hard is not going to be sufficient here. Like this, this system is too complex. There's too many ways to interleave all of these concurrent operations. It's time to break out the big guns. It's it's time for formal methods, and and that's it's formal uh, time. And and that's what led me to get out all the TLA plus material again, and what led to the demo you were talking about at the beginning. So could you speak to your own origins with respect to TLA plus? Because I think you got exposed to this at Microsoft. Is that right? Uh, yeah. So just just as background, um, the the whole the whole discipline we're gonna or I'm gonna be talking about here uh, is is this discipline of formal methods, which are the uh, the the practice of describing systems in a very mathematically rigorous way, so that we can design them and specify them and hopefully verify them. Not that I'm I'm gonna go go all in on verify <laughs> here. I, I'll probably I'll probably slip Going up and say verify. validate like a third of the time. But we'll we'll go right. with verify. Uh, using using the tools of mathematics and and formal logic that are available to us to reason, you know, very very formally and powerfully about about these systems. Yeah, I mean, it, it, in terms of my own history with it, I um I think I first came across TLA plus specifically back in like 2010. 2011, something around there. Uh, I was working in the Windows kernel team at the time um, and was working on synchronization objects uh, up in user mode and had a colleague who worked on some of the uh, the kernel mode counterparts to these, some of the kernel mode synchronization objects. And I was I was building something new and having a lot of trouble like getting all of everything to work right and getting it not to just, you know, crash at various points. And my colleague was like, "Hey, you know, here's this, here's this thing for formally, you know, specifying the the different steps that these algorithms can take, and you know, like trying to come up with stronger inferences about them." I can't remember if he mentioned that it had a model checker uh, at the time, at the time or not. Um, but I was a couple years into my career, and I was basically like, "Yeah, you know, I'm really stressed out about getting this thing delivered." So, yeah, like, I, uh, nope, I don't know what I, I, I am. I'm I'm gonna forget about that for now. Like I'm I'm way too busy to deal with this. Um, some years later, uh, I started. I forget how I did this, but I first came across uh, Hillel Wayne's writing, and Hillel is a um, is a consultant and writer uh, who specializes in formal methods and in TLA plus specifically, and wrote uh, the the TLA tutorial at LearnTLA.com. And uh, there's in addition to all of his writing about um, about formal methods, there's a lot of interesting stuff uh, that he's written about uh, software, again, software verification more generally, and about uh, about engineering practice and engineering as a profession that's just like bread and butter stuff for me that I find really interesting. So um, that was kind of a nice, uh, nice return to it a little bit. And then in, uh, it was a reminder that this stuff existed. Then the first time I think I actually like used TLA for anything reasonably practical was in 2019. I was on leave uh, and had a little bit of downtime and used it to reproduce a bug that I had once written into the Win32 critical section that could cause mm. um, a crit sec to be uh, not held, but have a waiter who was blocked on it. And it, it turned out to be like, so the, the issue was this complicated ABA problem in the state of the lock where like you, you'd get somebody who acquired the lock and then dropped it and they thought that like the lock state hadn't changed and it was somebody else's job to wake waiters. But in fact, the, the somebody else had left the lock long ago. And, and what I remember about this bug was that I had written it and then it had gone through like the first step in, in the Windows engineering and integration process to get to a slightly broader internal audience. And then we started getting like these occasional 
reports of like, hey, you know, in stress testing, this thing is failing. We're seeing these locks get abandoned. So back the thing out. And, and it took um, myself and two colleagues on that team a few days, really, to figure out what was going on. Like one of one, one of my teammates came in um, a few days later and said, OK, I was thinking about this last night. I think I finally got it. What if like this and this and this and this? And we looked at the code and we realized, hey, that's exactly right. Like that's what's going on here. And we fixed the bug. So that was um, a couple years prior, but in 19, uh, I decided, okay, like, you know, as, a, as an exercise, I'm going to try to reproduce this and, and see, like, you know, what, what we would have gotten out of a TLA plus model for it. And, and I was very impressed upon by the fact that the model checker found, took the bug that took probably 50 engineer hours to find and pinpointed it in about 25 minutes and then verified the solution to it in another 25 or 30 minutes. That was, that, that made a big impression. Um, it was, a, it. I was very impressed upon by what a powerful tool this was for reasoning about all of these different ways that we could get these different interleavings of different threads working on uh, working on this lock and that we could make sure that there wasn't any deadlock and all of our appropriate invariants were upheld at each and every step. Greg, I yeah, love that, that in awesome. particular because you started from, you know, I don't have time to learn this thing to holy crap, if I had learned this thing, it would have saved me so much time. Oh man, yeah, I I I was I definitely kicked myself a few times after realizing, boy, this would have this would have saved me a whole lot. Like back when we when we ran into this, but um, youth for for one thing, I was pretty early in career when that happened. So you know, I will I will give myself a little forgiveness there. And better late than never. It's nice to be able to use all of these tools now. Well, after the ignorance of youth comes the hubris of experience. So uh, <laughs> some of us transition just you know from one to the next. Well, so, I mean, a lot of my philosophy with these tools, too, is that I, I want to use these because I know I'm going to make mistakes. And I know that there is no way I'm going to be able to think hard enough about any of these problems to be able to actually, like, suss any of this stuff out to begin with. And and so it's, um, you know, for, for me... I, I really like having the extra assurance that comes from having the computer do the really hard work of thinking about um, all of the different ways that things can be interleaved and can interact with one another and having it, you know, hold up the various problems that we can we can get into in designing systems like this. So um, it is, uh, if, if nothing else, experience has taught me that, yep, I write a lot of bugs and it is nice to be able to head as many of those off at the pass as I can manage. And these are nice tools for uh, for doing some of that. Okay, so with that, I mean, do you want to explain a little bit what TLA Plus is and what what is a model? How do you generate it? How what is what are we doing when we're actually checking the model? Sure. Yeah. So 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 TLA is the is the temporal logic of actions. Um, the plus is for some set theory stuff that I you know candidly did not take enough discrete math and in, in under also is understand. is the plus so, in yeah. superscript? It looks like the plus is in superscript, which is like up there with Unix being in small caps as a way of just angering people from a typesetting perspective. But I am. Um, uh, I mean. The way I have not, it might be typeset and superscript in some places, but no one that I have seen is going to get particularly antsy about just having it in regular, regular script. I, I'm so, sure there's someone who only uses in superscript being like, I told you this, these people are slobs. These people who don't <laughs> put it in superscript, they're slobs. Anyway, sorry, pretty, yeah, continue. No, 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 that's fine. So, so the, the idea is that, um, you know, we, uh, we, we take a combination of of set theory and 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 formal logic, um, and propositional logic, and and add some notational um, uh, 
uh, affordances to be able to talk about how a system evolves over time. And in doing that, we, we were able to, um, to generate the way that I think of it is like big graphs, big execution traces of the way that a system is allowed to that a system is allowed to proceed um, through through a set of executions. So, so the idea is that like a a model, what a model really really kind of boils down to is a it's a big old logical predicate. It's the disjunction of a whole bunch of dif of different individual predicates that that specify. You know, I have I have the universe, and I have some set of variables in the universe that I care about, and the variables can take can in theory take any arbitrary value i can have some variable that is 3 or it's some string or it's some you know unique unique model value that you know is is not equal to anything except itself or or, or it's a set or something something along those lines there's there's a few different you know individual quote unquote types of things that, that we can have in, in the system. And um, what our what our model is is a, a specification of values that that it is a set of predicates that tell us what values belong to like our um and I'm really, really kind of struggling for the words here, but what values fit into our model? Like which ones are part of the the set of states that can be reached by the um by the system that we have specified. So usually the way that you would write that is you would say, in the initial state, my variables can have any of the following values. And that could be like, th this could be, th this is guaranteed to be null, or it always starts out as zero, or it's like anything from one to 10 or something along those lines. And then you, uh, you take the disjunction of that with a special predicate that says so something of the form of, if the variables are in are have the following values or meet the following conditions in the in some prior state then they take on the following values in the next state and that next state becomes part of the universe of 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 part of the selection of states that are allowed um by the by the system that you have specified so you you are writing a set of rules essentially for how you can proceed from one set of variable values to another at each individual step and then you can uh you can so that that's your specification of your system beyond that what you can do is you can express sets of predicates over those variables that are supposed to be invariant over the variables so you can say things like you know this this thing should always be an integer of some kind and if it's not then i have screwed something up in the model um you can get into things like you know so for the example i gave earlier um we can have a rule that says if the instance is currently running, like if the variable that I have in my in my model that says uh, that says what the state of the instance is is set to running, then the user intent, the last thing I heard from the user, had better not be that it is stopped. Like that that is if if I see that, then that's a problem. And then yeah, there is software right. that that takes this thing and enumerates all of the different possible states and executions and interleavings thereof, and uh, will check for you to see if your invariants are inviolated at any particular point and if they are, then it will scream. And it will scream in an especially useful way where it will show you um, that the, the TLA model checker, TLC, will will show you the set of steps that it, it took to reach the broken invariant. So you can look through there and see like this whole like, oh, this and then this and then this and then this and then this and these like 15 steps together led to this particular invariant being violated. And this is the thing that I have to go figure out how to fix. And let me, how often is it a bug in the model? Because as you're developing the model, presumably you also have things where it's like, 
identifying one of these interleavings. Like, oh, actually, I realize that the model does not represent the system accurately in this regard. Yeah, uh, I mean, so, so it, go, sorry, go ahead and finish, please. No, no, no. Yeah, go ahead. So they just like, how, how often is it a bug in the model versus I, the the model is correctly representing the program, and therefore it's a bug in the program or in the thinking. Uh, I mean, so if it is a if you're doing a translation, it's it's at least like sometimes that that this happens. Um, I have not like translated a whole heck of a lot of code at least as I have been doing these. It's mostly been sort of new design. So I tend to think of bug in the model as something more the, along the lines of like you know, uh, yeah, oh, I refer to the, the wrong. Yeah, I referred to the wrong variable there, and so now I, I have an invariant that's being violated, but it's, it's because I screwed up, right? Like this wasn't what yeah, I yeah, had yeah. to express. I, I think that a common thing that can happen is um, that you like the the common failure mode for me has been like oversight of one kind or another. Like you know, I there's there's this particular case, and I just like didn't think of that, and so I specified this behavior that I thought was going to work, but is missing like some particular condition that needs to be uh needs to be checked in order for everything to uh in order for everything to hold up correctly so like i was working on one of these today i'm going to try to find the example that i had in here um yeah something along the lines of you know we have to um oh yeah it turns out that we have to check to make sure that the thing that is currently in the table is the one that we're trying to remove from the table because of, like just doing this you know rote replacement is not semantically correct for the particular thing that i am modeling i my experience is that like the this sort of mistake it, mistake i wouldn't even call it a model in the bug or excuse me a bug in the model necessarily i tend to think of it more as just yeah like you didn't you didn't think of that quite right you kind of left it underspecified or you know here's here's a thing that you you didn't picture just yet one thing that is fun about this is getting into dialogue with the model checker almost where you know you come up with something and you have your set of invariants and all right here's my proposal for how we're going to uphold these and checker says no and the checker says oh yeah you know you like you messed this up in this particular way okay well you know I'll, I'll i'll add this and this and add this check here and this step here and deal with that and you send it back to the checker and the checker says yeah no but what about this other thing and um for a while while i was doing all the design work for migration orchestration there was i was just sitting here like having a back and forth with the model checker about like okay what about this design what about this design what about this design and um if it's it's actually like even in the commit history like for the models in our in our internal docs where it's like okay this is still failing because of this thing all right we fixed that but now it's failing because of this thing and um it's it's honestly like kind of fun to have the automated you know automated conscience sitting there telling you what is wrong with all of the stuff that you've done so far when you're able to do very rapid iteration but it's a, a rapid iteration at the kind of the highest level of the system of where you're actually yes. thinking about the system and that's most abstract um before you can make much more costly mistakes by actually building it the wrong way. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the one of the things that is really uh, you know valuable about this, like one question that that I think Brian, that I think you asked when I first you know showed some of this stuff was you know what the what the procedures are for translating one of these things into actual code, and um, there's there it depends like kind of on what system you're working in but generally automation of, of of turning a formal specification into a piece of executable code is is a very very difficult problem it would totally. would have been especially difficult in a case like this like the the prototyping that we'd be talking about here would be in order to implement that ultimately implement the the design that that I settled on had to go change like our 
there were a bunch of changes to our internal database schema. And I had to update all of the code that was like dealing with all the types that were dealing with the schema. And I had to add all the APIs that dealt with all of these internal interactions between these various things. And uh, like thousands of lines of Rust ultimately to, to implement all of this stuff. And a, a lot of time spent on it. And um, yeah, like trying to do all of that just to get to a point where, you know, we could find out that here is like this subtle, you know, this particularly subtle issue that would have, we may not even have found any of the subtle issues. Totally. I, oh I, God. I, yeah. And I think too, like that, that's, that's a point too, that I think is worth emphasizing with the original bug that, that led to this whole, um, led to this whole affair in order to hit it, you would have needed the, a, a, a very precise set of step of, of, of racing steps to happen where a Nexus process crashes at exactly the right time. And while it is coming back up, your customer stops a VM and the VM stop gets recorded, like just recorded enough, but but not quite enough in order for this, like in order for this whole thing to get replayed and, and deal with the, um, uh, and create the condition that we were trying to avoid. Can you imagine writing the integration test for that? Like the the the, the oh, set God. of controls yeah, totally. that you would need in order to be able to get like this specific sequence of crashes and everything to happen. And that's if you know like that this bug is in here in the first place. So yeah, I was um, saying, that's assuming you can debug it. I mean, this is the kind of bug you're going to see oh, yeah. exactly once, and you've got to hope that you've got enough information that's been left post-mortem for you to be able to figure out what actually happened here and then rely on kind of the, the putting it all together in terms of what has happened and then the ability to reproduce it so it's much much easier to think about it in terms of the, yep. of the model and and with the rare ones too um you know as i'm i'm, I'm sure we, we all kind of appreciate when you you know you do you write your fix and you go to test it and the bug doesn't happen and is that just because it you took it and now it's even more rare than it was to start with or is it really gone and your fix is your fix is really working and yeah being able to just you know iterate all of over all of this stuff exhaustively is a um uh is a very very powerful set of techniques for for dealing with these things when it's also especially if you've got a fix i mean having just had had this recently to myself where i had a fix that was uh, almost complete, but slightly, but not complete and not actually complete, but it made the bug so much less likely to hit that I, I deluded myself into thinking that I'd actually completely resolved the issue. And it, it, it's very, when you don't have that higher level of abstraction to be able to reason about, it's, it's easy to do that. It's easy to think that you fixed it because the bug, the bug used to be here and now it's gone away. It's like, well, actually it's now it's now you've made it much 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 less likely congratulations but you actually haven't completely fixed it and there's still a window and that's where your model checking can really come to the rescue so can you just talk about the mechanics of this a little bit because you were using i think the, the you're using pluscal right is that the am i remembering that correctly yeah for the for the for the model i demoed yes um so so tla pure tla plus is what i described earlier which is you know you you go and you write all of the predicates um predicates by hand. Uh, there is a domain-specific language called PlusCal that is more procedurally oriented in the sense that it looks a lot more like it. it there's, there's a Pascal-ish dialect and a C-ish dialect. And it looks a lot more like a straight line set of procedures and, and, and functions that you have written. And, and I think can be a little bit more familiar um, 
certainly was for me getting into uh, getting into modeling the for, for the first time. So you you write one of these things in this more procedural style uh, according to the rules of the DSL, and then there's a translator that turns that into uh, into actual TLA plus for you by taking your um, it does the insertion of all of the like I have this procedure and it's at this particular point in the procedure. It does all of the program counter stuff and generates that for you so that you don't you don't have to think about it as much. Um, the the learn TLA resource I talked about earlier um, is PlusCal oriented. I think for the first probably I'd say 80% of it or so. Um, it is a uh, it's a good way to get started and with, with more familiar concepts. If you I think if you were brand new to this sort of thing, and it is also um, I think especially good for taking existing code and trying to translate it into something that can be model checked or taking an existing procedure and, and turning it into something that can be model checked. Um, I, I have done a little bit since then of, of just doing things in pure TLA plus. There is a uh, set of, of examples, uh, the, the collection is called Pragmatic Formal Modeling, and I've got links to all this stuff that I'll, I'll kick over and we'll make sure we get in the show notes. Um, but uh, the, there's some examples of things that you can do to model systems that, that and these examples are written like just in pure TLA, no plus Cal in sight. And, and that kind of put me on to some of the, the power that you get out of expressing things in um, uh, just like in, in this pure form. I, I think if you were asking me like to pick one if I were doing something that was very clearly like procedurally oriented and I ha or that has like a lot of I find it easier to reason about like locks and waiting for conditions and and, and translating code that looks like that uh, in PlusCal for things that are, it, you know, sort of interlocking interacting state machines where you have a bunch of like if the if the the widget is in this particular condition then it will it can go into this state or that state or the other state um that can actually be really i found that that can be really natural to just write in tla and um that's that it turns out actually that the migration design specifications that that i mentioned i ended up just doing those that way because it turned out to be the easiest to reason about like oh yeah you know this is how all of these individual pieces of state are allowed to change given the different things that are going on Oh, uh, at, at some some particular point. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it took reading the, the some additional examples to really get a sense for like, oh yeah, you know, here's 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 how I would express all of this stuff, and here's what ADM kind of looks like, and that that was really helpful in figuring out how to actually put those things together. And so, did the model? Were you able to reproduce the bug that you thought you had found as you're beginning to design? You're like, I think I've got this bug in the in the extant system. Were you able to reproduce that bug uh, yeah. using your model? Yeah. So, so the 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 first and and it feels a little bit like so I was able to do that. It it feels a little bit like cheating because like we've we had already looked at it and it's like yeah you know this is kind of already there. So, am I writing this model in a way that is going to get the model checker to show me just to show <laughs> right. me the bug that I know I, that I already think is there, or am I doing this right? Like, am I being fair about all this? But but I think I I think we decided it was the latter. Um and and the nice but thing about it was that it was oh yeah sorry go ahead. Well you, you use this pattern twice right? I think it was kind of interesting that you use this when you were first kind of experimenting with this in 2019 and maybe that's just a good way for you know as you're kind of getting your your feet wet with these things like actually going and reproducing something that you're already aware of and oh, let yeah. this thing find it is actually a pretty good way to to, to understand the 
tool chain, I imagine. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And and certainly like there is when you're learning to do something like this, there's no substitute for practice and you can do all the reading you want, but eventually you kind of got to, um, I, I think anyway, you kind of got to just do some of them to really get a sense for how everything works and what, what works well and what makes things fit together nicely. And uh, certainly doing that with an existing system that you already understand well is easier than uh, is, is easier than trying for, for a first go around than doing something out of whole cloth. So, um, yeah, the I, I wouldn't necessarily say that the parts of, of our control plane that I was working in were things that I knew very well at the time that I was doing this. So, eh, you know, it was it, I, I wouldn't. I was a little worried that I was misrepresenting something, but to your point, yeah, I mean, the, the model checker was, was pretty quick to throw up the bug that we thought we had and was pretty quick to verify a solution too. Like we go and there, there was a solution that we'd suggested that was essentially, yeah, what if we break this into two phases and we, you know, have one step that says, Hey, I'm going to start an instance here. And then another step that actually starts the instance so that if the second one like gets replayed, then it doesn't like, it doesn't get started again because it already started once and then got stopped. And in in principle, yeah, you know the 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 checker's happy, and we went off and um, and implemented that, and uh, have generally been generally been pleased with it since. I mean, to be fair, I don't know that we had ever actually seen this issue in practice, um, but it was certainly something that appeared to be there on inspection and uh you know hopefully it will it will not crop back up as we continue doing more empirical testing and, and stress testing of the system and things of that well nature. and I, I think that that's also super satisfying and a very it's a good omen as a software engineer when you are discovering pre-existing bugs as part of your work you're like okay this is like i'm beginning to test this thoroughly enough that or think about this rigorously enough that I'm discovering pre-existing things that were already here. I just feel, I, again, I feel it's a good, it's a good omen. It's not necessarily a certainty, but it's a, you know, you're, you're going in the right direction and you're, you're, you're thinking about, about the, uh, the system um, in the right ways, or you're thinking about it in a way that hasn't been thought of previously. So the, and did you end up, did the models end up, did you end up effectively checking that in side by side with the software or what, what happens to the artifact that is the model? Uh, so they are, they're not in with the software, although they probably should be. Um, I will have to get over my embarrassment at, at my, my probably unidiomatic and, and generally noobish TLA plus modeling. But uh, they, are, uh, they are at least checked into our internal uh, request for discussion repo. So for the Oxide folks at least playing at home, uh, they're, they're present alongside RFD 361. For the migration one, I would like to get it transferred over uh, into, the, into the Omicron repository, into the control plane repo, so that it will just like be there as part of the repo docs. I, I also am looking to do that. There's an issue I've been working on today, actually, where don't do Doing some of the same modeling tasks um, to try to verify that, like, oh yeah, this this proposed fix for this um, particular problem that I've seen uh, is is probably going to work out all right. And I would like to uh, get that spruced up and 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 put in uh, put in at least into into the issue comments, if not just checked into the repo as well. But yeah, I, I think it can be really helpful to have that stuff alongside. These things function in part as documentation of the way that the system is actually supposed to behave at a high level and you know what is uh what was just you know let me let me see if i can dig up one of these things uh which one which one is this so this is the uh this it, is the configuration file i i want to i want to get a sense of like how long one of these things is so this is yeah this is i think it'd be, like it'd be really helpful comments. to see one of these totally um 
Yeah. So I mean, the 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 TL, this TLA model. So so this one here, I'm I'm looking I'm looking at one of the ones that I did for the migration orchestration. The the entire model file, including just like uh, lots and lots and lots of block comments, just to try to explain what's going on, is about 700 lines. And the I remember like when the actual code was originally done, it was about 10 times that in total in 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 the delta. So and and spread across just many 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 files and many components. And like I mentioned earlier, buried in the weeds of all of this stuff around how exactly do we write all the ORM code to go manipulate the database in the right way? And what do all of these individual like API endpoints look like? It's it's not boilerplate. Like it's important stuff that we have to do in order to have a shippable artifact. Like no one's going to run the model, uh, run the VMs on the model, but I think it is a much uh, uh, a much more concise way of expressing the the intent of 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 the system here. We well, yeah, and maybe that's a good segue too to uh, Randy you because you know when you begin to go from like okay so we, we you've been using the model to kind of envision the system from whole cloth, and now we actually have a system. And now we need to actually verify the the kind of the extant system, and then we need to be able to improve it, and we need to be able to fix a bug in it, and be able to to know that we that we haven't kind of violated its invariance for the actual implementation as opposed to the, the model. And Rain and, and testing is something that is very near and dear to your heart, and you, uh, I, you've been. Uh, working on things to to uh, use property based testing, which is something I have not used. So maybe you could. Uh, this is maybe a good segue to some of the work that you've done in that regard. Yeah. Um, so it's funny because uh, the first time I was introduced to property based testing was in the context of a model being defined, um, and then uh, we needed to test that the implementation actually worked. So. Oh, uh, so, uh, so I used to work at Facebook, and um, I was on the source control team at Facebook, uh, building the next generation source control server called Mononoke. Uh, and um, as you might have heard of, Facebook stores all of its code in a single giant repository with um, hundreds of millions of lines of code. Last I knew. Um, and I mean, there's the mega mono repo. There's going to yes. be a different term. This is like, yeah, mono repo, but like, no, much larger. This is, I mean, it's amazing the, the scale. Um, it's it's pretty incredible. It's uh, it it leads to certain interesting trade offs. Uh, so one of those trade offs is that we had to build new source control data structures uh, to support this because the existing uh, Git like data structures uh, didn't meet some performance characteristics that we needed them to meet. Um, so we um, so my coworker uh, Jeremy Fitzharding um, actually built out. So we we did some design by hand, and my coworker built out a um, uh, the specification for the structure in Alloy, which is a cousin of uh, TLA plus, uh, I believe, mm -hmm. Greg. And um, actually, Hillel I think has some good writing on Alloy as well. Yeah, there's, there's, Alloy is definitely in the, in the same family. It, um, and Hillel does have, have extra writing about it. I have not really, I haven't played around with it a whole heck of a lot, except like a little bit last week, uh, just to sort of see what it was like before, before sitting down here. So, um, the, the, uh, 
the thing about Alloy, I think, is that it has historically not been as strong at modeling concurrency. Like it's always been kind of a bag on the side uh, until its most recent release. And it's gained some different powers for reasoning about concurrent systems and the flow of time and that kind of thing. So um, it is uh, something that I'd like to revisit at some point. But yeah, Alloy, Alloy seems cool in that it has a, it seems like um, it has a much stronger uh, object model, shall we say, than, than TLA does. And I imagine that for for the kind of it, I, I I bet you that for the kind of system you're talking about here, Rain, that that kind of proper the the sorts of powers that it has in that respect were probably uh, particularly useful. Yeah, that sounds right. Uh, yeah, that's my understanding too. That Alloy is good for modeling uh, data at rest. I think is the way my coworker mm. described that. Um, but uh, anyway, so you know we'd written out this model and it seemed to check out, and we you know ironed out all the all the issues with it, but then when we actually went to write the code, we realized that the model was fiendishly complicated. Um, and uh, I think the code to translate back and forth between um, uh, Mercurial, which is what we were using, and um, the this model was like several, I want to say at least 1,500, probably 2,000 lines of code. So uh, we needed a way to actually make sure that things like uh, if things like you needed to be able to do a round trip and you needed to be able to exercise all sorts of edge cases. And so that's where I started looking into property-based testing. And um, uh, we, we used property-based testing in a, in a couple of ways. One of them was we took out random subsets of our gigantic monorepos and we replayed them um, and we made sure that like all the invariants were upheld. We also synthesized random repositories to make sure that, um, you know, in all these sorts of edge cases, um, the all the invariants that we wanted to uh, uphold actually, you know, worked. <clears throat> so I think overall that was my first experience with property-based testing. Um, and, and Rick, I think, maybe yeah. is it, do you want to just explain what kind of what property based yeah. testing is kind of the approach that because it's uh, and kind of its origins? Yeah, so property based testing originally, uh, my understanding is that the first uh, versions of it were written in uh, Haskell. Uh, I think this comes from the 1990s, I want to say. And uh, the idea behind property based testing is that um, most of the tests we write. Um, like in our normal use are like, you know, like you have a list that's like one, four, two, three, five, you sort it and the output you get is one, two, three, four, five, right? Um, and the idea behind property-based testing is that rather than testing for specific examples, you generate a, uh, you generate a bunch of random test cases that you hope will exercise all of those um, all the different code parts you care about, and then you run them through your code under test, and you make sure that the answers there are correct. Now, there's a huge asterisk next to the how do you make sure that the answers are correct, but that's the overall view of uh, property-based testing. Um, I think there's two, uh, there's kind of two different generations of property-based testing libraries. Uh, one of them is one that uh, I'm sure a lot of folks have heard of. It's called QuickCheck. Um, QuickCheck is is kind of the original property-based testing library. It has been in use in, since the 90s, and I know that uh, it's in use for things like automotive uh, design, where you want to make sure that your um, 
your car software behaves the right way uh, under edge cases and so on. Um, the other, uh, the next generation of property-based test systems was originally um, actually in Python, um, hmm. which is called Hypothesis. And um, in Rust, the port of Hypothesis to Rust is called PropTest. Um, I'm going to offend some people by saying this, but I think that <laughs> nobody should use QuickCheck at this point. Like oh, uh, QuickCheck, and I'm going to go into why. Uh, but but PropTest is like if you're if you're if there's one takeaway that you have from this, it is that uh, if you're using Rust, you should use PropTest. Uh, Haskell has Hedgehog for the same thing, and in Python, of course, there's Hypothesis, and all of them have a design that is uh, better. And I'm going to talk about how it's better. <laughs> Um, so with property-based testing, um, I mentioned earlier that uh, property-based testing is all about generating random values. Um, now, those random values tend to be pretty big. Um, and so often, like, you will generate a value that's, you know, like, uh, for, for, for example, for starting a list, you might generate a value that has, like, 500 elements or something like that. Um, now, when you're actually like trying to debug test failures, if you're just suddenly presented with a, here's 500 elements and you need to go, you know, figure out what's going on here, um, then that can be really hard. So the other bit that property-based test frameworks provide is called shrinking. And the idea behind shrinking is that after the test framework finds a failing case, it tries to s reduce the size of the input uh, in a way that it ultimately finds the smallest input. And, and the algorithm for that is pretty straightforward. You just kind of keep throwing smaller and smaller inputs at it and until you find the smallest input that fails. Uh, so um, the modern property-based testing libraries like PropTest are a lot better at shrinking than, mm. um, than the previous generation. Um, and so... They require a bit more effort to use, but I think you get so much more out of them with shrinking that uh, it ends up being uh, a pretty clear win. And so then how do you use them? I mean, how do you, if I, I want to use, yeah. I've, I've got a Rust crate, I want to use PropTest, like, how do I get started? Yeah, so uh, with PropTest, you can, um, so there's a library, it's called PropTest. You uh, import the library, and I'm going to just paste a code sample here. Yeah. Um, and so, let me see. Wow. Okay. So it ate up all the uh, <laughs> the the indentation oh, badly. Um, but um, so here we have a couple of different examples of property-based tests for a um, uh, <laughs> for uh, uh, for a sort function. So in this case, we are testing a function called my sort. And we have two property-based tests here. One of them is that um, once you've sorted the input, uh, for every uh, pair that's in window and output.windows2, we make sure that the, the previous element is less than equal to the next element. So that's a, that's a pretty straightforward uh, invariant that you want a sort function to uphold. Um, I think that this, this sort of invariant if you spot it, it's great, but often it ends up being pretty rare uh, in my experience. Uh, so for a sort function, I think you know it's pretty clear, but there's like I found a lot of other real-world use cases where it's very hard to find these sorts of invariants. I think um, 
the more interesting uh, kind of invariant and the one that I think is really exposes how powerful property-based testing is, is the second kind of uh, example, which is where we test our sort against, in this case, a bubble sort. Um, so uh, over here, what we do is we have our system under test, which is my sort. <clears throat> and we also have um, some sort of simplified model of how the code should work. Uh, in this case, it, it is a bubble sort. Uh, it could also be, for example, the sort uh, in the standard library, which is probably correct. And so we run our input through our function, and we run it through the function that is that forms our model, and we compare that our output is the same as the bubble output. And um, this sort of, uh, I think that this this general pattern of testing um, is uh, is uh, is much more common than most people think. And I, as someone who's used property-based testing for a long time, I'm like always on the lookout for like, okay, what other uh, pre-existing work of art can we compare this to in order to make sure that our system behaves in a certain way? Yeah, that's really interesting. So when you say you're on the lookout, like what things are you looking for? Where because I mean, uh, clearly, if if I were taking one system and replacing it with another or another implementation, for example, very useful because I've got my Oracle is the the extant implementation. Um, yeah, exactly. It, it, but it, it gets rockier when we're kind of doing new stuff. But so when you're on the lookout, what are you looking for? Are you looking for kind of subsystems that we have analogs for elsewhere? Or what are you looking for exactly? Yeah, usually there's subsystems that, uh, there, usually there's like smaller components that might have pre-existing solutions. Um, often what I found is that there is a, there is some other way to express a particular algorithm or data structure that has a worse time complexity, so um, uh, or yeah, you know is less efficient oh. in some way. So I will put in the effort to actually write a second implementation that is like facially correct and has you know even if it has a worse time complexity or space complexity or whatever, and then run our uh, run tests through both of those uh, to make sure that they're the same. So often, you know, you do have to put in a lot of extra work. Uh, but in my experience, it's work that has paid off over and over again. Like I found like probably over 100 bugs via property-based testing at this point oh, over wow. my career. Wow. That, that, wow, that's, that is really, when I, as, as you're saying that, I mean, one of the things that I'm thinking about is, you know, we write a lot of no standard code and that you're op operating under certain constraints under no standard. You actually are trying to implement things that actually uh, are available in the standard library. And that would be a, a, an example where you, it's very easy. Like your Oracle is the thing that actually has the, the, the that uses the standard library and you can compare that very directly and know that your no standard implementation is correct before you actually have to debug it in an embedded environment. Yeah, that's uh, that's sort of like more constrained uh, implementation is is a pretty common uh, pretty common approach. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, and uh, and maybe worth describing the kind of concrete example that you were showing us in terms of of prop testing and where where this came up and kind of the software that you were writing um, and how you found something that could act as that kind of oracle. Yeah, this is this is actually a really cool example because I thought that this was a, just a really fun and interesting use of property-based testing. So I wrote this uh, create called um, Bufflist, which um, I, I just posted a link to. 
Um, so this represents a segmented list of bytes chunks. So the context here is that usually when you're working with byte buffers in Rust, uh, you have something like a vec u8 or a bytes if you're fancy, you can use the bytes grade. Um, all of them are contiguous chunks of bytes arrays. So if you're, you, for example, if you're storing like 20 gigs of memory uh, or 20 gigs of data, like say a disk image, you would need to do a contiguous 20 gig allocation. Um, that can be pretty inefficient. So uh, a different way to store bytes uh, data is as a uh, list of bytes chunks, or in particular, a queue of bytes chunks. Um, and the idea is that you can uh, read data off of the beginning of the thing and go on until the end, and the, the data structure internally keeps track of uh, making sure that um, you're reading the right bytes and you're not skipping over bytes and so on. Um, so for this data structure, um, I needed a cursor type. So uh, for those who are unfamiliar, uh, in Rust, uh, there's this wonderful notion of cursor types. So if you look at standard IO cursor, um, then that is a type that wraps any sort of contiguous uh, byte array. And it provides a read implementation on top of it and a seek implementation on top of it. It logically represents some sort of pointer into this data. And uh, so the cursor type is, it's actually like, if you look at the implementation, it's pretty straightforward. Um, um, it's, a, it's a really useful type that works across any sort of contiguous byte buffer. However, what we have here is a discontiguous byte buffer. So cursor doesn't work for that. So I needed to write my own cursor. And um, the cursor for discontiguous byte buffers is actually significantly harder to write than a, than, a, than the standard IO cursor <laughs> yeah, because, totally. because you have to keep track of all sorts of fiddly indexes. You have to make yeah. sure that you know, you're reading past, you aren't reading past the end of something. You need to keep track of all of those things. So I needed a principled way to make sure that my cursor was correct. And the thought that came to my mind is that why don't I compare my cursor against the standard IO cursor? So what I did to address that is I, <clears throat> I wrote um, a test which generates a random um, uh, discontiguous buffer, like a buff list. It combines that into a single bigger list. Um, and that's something that is very inefficient, but it is OK to do in a test, right? So that's, that's kind of where you start seeing the power of prop test. Um, <clears throat> After well, that, and, you, and, it, we, and this is a very concrete example we were talking yes. about, where you've got different constraints. Where you, the the uh, the whole the reason bufflist exists is because it's going to be processing these galactic amounts of data. But you actually don't need the galactic amounts of data to be able to test all of these various edge conditions. Exactly, and so that's where um, so that's where uh, you know that's where you know you can uh, like for smaller inputs, you can be sure that uh, bufflist works properly. And so I just pasted a link to the test. And the thing this does is it generates this buff list. It combines this into a single thing. And then it also generates a set of operations on cursors. So, so the set of operations are set position, start, seek, end, current, read, and so on. So you have all of these different uh, examples of uh, operations you can generate. And then what it does is 
it applies these operations to the uh, system under test, which is our cursor. It applies them to the Oracle, which is the standard IO cursor, and it makes sure that um, makes sure that it all checks out and all returns the same answers. And this ended up finding six separate bugs. I remember it like oh I remember fixing God. one bug, and wow. it's like, oh wow. Uh, so this ended up finding six separate bugs, and then after the sixth bug, it was like, <laughs> you know, pass. And then I was like, uh, yeah, I th- uh, and you know, at that point, it's like pretty. Were you? Correct. I, I mean, that's how boy that is a lot. I, at some point, and I know I've I've sort of had this where you're just like, okay, did I do anything right in this code? Like, how many bugs are there here? It's like, all right, this is, but this is exactly the kind of code that get is so hard to get right in terms of yeah. where, where you've got. As you say, it's all these fiddly little edge conditions where you know you're. you're I, um, it's easy to envision how you could ha- have. Yeah, that is that is really powerful. Can I ask you what, what do these strategy decorators denote? Yeah, so uh, so this is getting into a little bit of the weeds, but um, so the stra- uh, so the way prop test works is that um, you uh, the way you generate random values is by creating strategies of that type. And a strategy is simply a way to generate random values, but it also carries information on how you can shrink values into smaller ones. And it uh, integrates both of those things together. And so strategy is a combination of those two things. So in this case, if you look at line 19, it, there is a buffless strategy. A buffless strategy is a, is a strategy that generates a random buff list. Uh, and the function's right below there. And the way it does it is it generates a vector of 1 to 128 bytes. Um, and then it um, combines and generates 0 to 32 vector uh, of them, uh, 0 to 32 uh, vectors and then it combines them all into a single uh, buff list. So that's so that's what that is. Now the fancy thing about prop test is that this is actually cl- more clever than it looks because the prop collection vec uh, function that is called here is um, also carries information on how you can reduce the size of the vector and reduce the size of the elements inside it. So all of that information is uh, carried along with uh, with the constructor. And this is something, this is the thing that distinguishes prop test and hypothesis and, and the other new generation property-based testing libraries from QuickCheck. Because quick, in QuickCheck, you don't carry that information along with it. And so it becomes much harder to do shrinking. I mean, how would you contrast this with fuzzing? Because it seems like there's yeah. some kind of similar properties here. Yeah, so uh, property-based testing and fuzzing are actually very closely related in many ways. So, so usually when people refer to fuzzing, uh, they will refer to uh, what is sometimes called like mutation fuzzing, where uh, where uh, the there is something that is kind of uh, instrumenting the test and making sure that it tries to explore every code branch. Uh, with property-based testing, by default, it doesn't try and explore every single code branch. Um, but but instead, uh, the thing it does is it um, it uses structured data rather than the unstructured data that fuzzing has. So, so there's trade-offs in both directions. Um, I found that those two things can often be used simultaneously. And one use one use that we use pretty extensively in in a in a in my past life was um, where you use all of the work that you did for property based testing you use that to generate 
random corpuses for fuzzing because all of these generate random values and these random values are very high quality and mutation fuzzing really depends on a high quality corpus to work really well so uh so you know you could generate like you can generate uh pretty good random inputs for from which uh, a mutation fuzzer can get going. And I remember that being really effective because uh, we were trying to fuzz a deserializer and, you know, deserializers can often be really hard to, uh, hard to make sure we're correct. So we generated valid values and then uh, gave them to the fuzzer. That got, uh, that got bugs in like a few seconds, whereas if you just ran a fuzzer with no corpus at all, it would take like hours to find uh, those edge cases. That's really cool. Uh, I really like this example too, Rain, and it did get me thinking, and I don't want to start a, a debate here, but <laughs> it seems like we could we could use TLA plus for this too, um, you know, for kind of modeling this kind of system with, with, again, all these kind of fiddly edge conditions, you know, encoding the logic into TLA. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Greg? Like, is it, you, would this be a good uh you know formal methods example as well or do you think uh you know it's not stepping on the toes of prop test uh, I, I think well i think i think they're separate i don't think it's all it's stepping on the toes of prop test i, I think they're they're very complementary um one thing about schemes like tla is that depending on the kind of data that you are working with for example you might find that tla plus is just not amenable to the particular problems that you were working on for one reason or another for example if you're trying to do something with floats uh no, sorry, you're going to have a bad time. There's not really a native like floats have have complicated semantics. That's not something that TLA plus does, you know, especially well. Um, I mean, in I, I think a lot of the uh, there are some cases where things can overlap. I, I think one of the things to keep in mind with with the formal modeling stuff in particular is that the models aren't code and they're not the shippable artifact. And so, you know, you do want to also make sure that you have you're bringing all of your your powers to bear on making sure that the, the stuff that you've done that actually implements the design that you've got um, upholds all of the properties and invariants and things that you actually expect it to uphold, um, you know, in the in, in, in that operating environment. So I think it can can kind of be both and like there's 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 probably I'm sure that there are some cases where like you know if you were doing a brand new algorithm and you can specify it like in a model checked kind of way um, you can certainly uh, get TLA to do a lot of things in in that respect um, but there's there's still a lot of room too I think for for good uh for good exhaustive test frameworks and sort of a, a broad spectrum of things especially when it comes time to verify the things that you actually mean to hand over um to your to your customers adam's attempts to generate formalism fight club have failed <laughs> <laughs> well you gotta try right exactly uh but i think it's actually yeah i mean so the um yeah yeah i mean the, the models the models are great the point is that they only get you so far right and especially with no with with very limited you know power for for automated translation into things you want to make sure like you know you didn't you didn't make a mistake then either and that's that's where you want to have as many powerful testing techniques in your arsenal for your production code uh as you have for the for the designs up front yeah, and I, I'm kind of like, I, and I love the fact that these are kind of complementary. And because I mean, also, like when you're using prop testing, it's like you're actually 
you're going to be bug for bug compatible with the thing that you are using as the oracle, right? So the, the and right now, it'd be interesting to know if you have you ever in doing this, have you ever found that there's actually a bug in the thing that you're using as the canonical implementation? So many times. That's like oh. honestly, like uh, there are so many places in which uh, you know there's like you've written an oracle and. Um, yeah, so I think, you know, just like TLA+, Plus, you're often in dialogue with the Oracle and with the system under test. And, you know, you're yeah. like, oh, actually, I didn't think about this edge case. And is this, a, is this an issue in the system under test or is it in the Oracle? And that's where you have to think about it. Um, I found that uh, sometimes uh, the Oracle can even be more complicated than the system under test. And that's where oh, it gets spicy. So, so as an, as an <laughs> example... Um, so I wrote this Rust library called Guppy, and Guppy is a way to track and query cargo dependency graphs. And one of the things it can do is it can simulate cargo builds. Um, mm. And so we can throw it a given list of like packages in your workspace and what features are enabled and whether dev dependencies are enabled or not, and all of these other flags, and it will tell you which uh, which packages were built in the end. And that's a really, really cool um, set of um, things. Uh, that's a really cool thing it can do, but how do you make sure it's correct? Well, uh, we have the Oracle, and the Oracle is Cargo, right? So right. you generate a random query, you throw it at Cargo, you throw it at uh, Guppy, you make sure that they produce the same results. Now, it turned out that that <laughs> ended up finding way more bugs in Cargo than it did in Guppy. There's a whole list of bugs in Cargo that it found. Um, and so, you know, who's the Oracle now? Well, that, but that's really interesting. I mean, I think that it is actually kind of the power of having these different implementations that are operating under different constraints. Or that you're taking, in, in Guppy's case, it's actually trying to do something different than what cargo is doing but it it's trying to use cargo to validate that it's using. i mean it's it, correct me if i'm misspeaking there but it sounds yes. like it, 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 and so the, the, they in other words like these are different things but they have a very important intersection point where they can be yes. used to check the other exactly um, they're they're completely different uh data structures with their own models and their own you know places where they're meant to be used and there are places where they do the same thing and so you can compare those things to make sure that you know if there's a bug, there's a bug in both of them, right? Um, so this is kind of asking you both like purely selfishly because it's a problem that's in front of me at the moment. But one of the, the challenges that we've got are in kind of dynamic systems where we are, and I and Adam, I'm, I'm thinking about some of our, um, the, the, some of the age old challenges about right transaction sizing um, with CFS, the trans, size of the transaction group. And we mm -hmm. see a lot of these things in a dynamic system where you kind of like, how do you, you know, you've got throttling behavior and so on. Is there any, can formalisms offer us things where we've got these like very dynamic systems where the, the, the system is not, it, it's not a, a question of correctness, but but uh, one of optimality and of kind of eliminating queuing delays. Am I, and sorry to just be freewheeling here, I'm really asking you to do my homework for me because this is a problem that's right in front of us as we kind of tackle some of the performance issues in front of us. This is where I wonder, did Discord die again? Yeah, yeah, that's right. You've disconnected. Don't worry. I've disconnected. Don't worry. Exactly. I know everyone's like, what the, what is he even talking about? Like, what is this? God, how do I even tell him he's not even wrong? It's like, not... 
maybe a related part, can we express constraints that are related to, you know, activity or, 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 or things of that notion, notion? Is that kind of what you're getting at, Brian? Yeah, I mean, just like how do we kind of model some of these these more runtime aspects of it um, that are not necessarily invariants, but um, are. This is not a well formed question. I'm realizing it. maybe it would have been better if off Discord had died. Discord did die. I mean, earlier the, the the app actually croaked. I'm like, you know, I uh, Greg is not getting my audio actually, but Adam, you can hear me. We've gone split screen. Weird. I can We've hear had you. This before. Are, are we uh, being haunted by Twitter Spaces? Is it possible that that <laughs> the ghost of Twitter Spaces? Yeah. Musk is stabbing his Discord voodoo doll right now, right in the right in the split brain, uh, which is definitely we've had all sorts of uh, the or, or is is it, it, yeah? Is Greg, Greg are you trying to make some meta point about verification? Is this a, is this a verification joke? Is this a verification humor? Um, the I the, the, and as Matt's pointing out that yeah the pot yeah, it is it is strange yeah it is actually maybe we do need some audio problems just kind of mix things up around here you know it did get a little got a little boring with the audio being so reliable <laughs> <laughs> that's right no random crash of the Twitter app that brought everyone down and, yeah oh my god especially going back and re-listening I know you have out of two going back and re-listening some of our old spaces where it's like okay got another audio problem all right it's like okay you guys do you have anything else to talk about other than audio problems. Uh yeah. <laughs> uh yeah, it the if there's 30 seconds of silence Matt, that was definitely me saying what I thought was a uh, uh me making what I thought was an interesting observation and then yeah, realizing it was that only it was, the first 10 seconds. The next 20 <laughs> seconds was everyone in stunned silence. It's stunned silence. Right, exactly. Uh well, look, I've been known to have conversations with nothing for <laughs> plenty plenty of times. So, um um where even are we? Where were, we, where, where were we even talking about? Oh, the, you know what? Actually, we're gonna we're gonna like never mention my question again. Let's actually let's Perfect. just pretend I didn't ask it. And there I'm we gonna go. go to, I'm gonna do better. Like, where are we? I think we're back on your like your moronic question. I think is where we were. It's like you know what? Let's actually let's, <laughs> let's, let's move off of that. Well, we can come back in a couple of weeks when you've solved that bug and explain how formal methods had helped you. Explain how far. What I think that I, I mean, you know, what are some of the things to kind of look for? Because you know, Rain, you were mentioning that you know you're kind of coming into this project at Facebook, and you know you've got this model, and you're kind of getting into prop testing as a way of, of checking the model. What are some things that people should be looking for and thinking about to like, boy, I I need to go use prop testing, or I need to think about actually formalisms with respect to to TOI plus and its derivatives. What what are some of the things? What's some of the kind of the spidey sense you get when it, when it's time to go go to this particular tool? Yeah, um, I do want to bookend this by saying that you know. Prop test is a tool, right? It is not the be all and end all of testing. There are you know, other signs of testing and everything have their own uses. But for me, I think uh, when I have an algorithm which has fiddly bits where there are a lot of numbers and indexes where things can go wrong, then I'll be you know, I'll be actively on the hunt for uh, for prop testing. Um, I think another really common use case is anything that feels like it can it should round trip. I think that is another really really good uh, use of property based testing, and that's where uh, serializers, deserializers. So so as an example, um, you know, you yeah. So it's pretty common to have a serializer and a deserializer, um, and especially if they're handwritten. So. Um, this is a bit less of an issue with SIRD, but often if you're handwriting a deserializer or serializer, you might want to make sure that everything round trips correctly. You want to make sure that 
you want to make sure that you're um, you're not losing any um, uh, any data in the middle and that the resulting value is the same. Um, there's a really good um, a really good uh, list of um, uh, properties uh, on this um, in this blog post that I really like because it kind of covers the general sets of things that you want to think about. And I think for me, the uh, round tripping and also the oh, actually, we need to write a second implementation that has different constraints. Uh, thing tend to be the most common uh, places where I'll spot uh, opportunities for property-based testing. Okay, Rain, yeah, now, now Brian asked his selfish question. My selfish question is I've got a, a collection of crates in this weird uh, JSON schema universe where <laughs> I take, um, you know, Rust types, generate JSON schema, and then reconstruct Rust types out of the JSON schema. A, a good case, do you think, for this kind of round tripping? Oh, that seems. Um, I think. Or too hairy because we're way... generating Rust types in bizarre ways. <laughs> Yeah, there needs to be some notion of equality, I think, that you need to define between the uh, existing Rust types and the new ones. So, I mean, one way you could do it potentially is by generating random values of those types and make and defining equality on them. Uh, though I'd have to look at the details to be like if, if this is the right approach. Okay. But, you know, there needs to be some way of comparing equality there. And as long as you can define that, I think you can use this. Gotcha. Cool. Thanks. Yeah, that is really the, the I, I I love the idea of like looking for round tripping of like when I I send the system I, I send the data through the system and I basically should expect the same thing out if I go through and that's a good a good candidate. Um, yeah. And and then Greg, it sounds like from from your perspective on on uh, using either TLI plus or or again its derivatives uh, plus cow or what have you. Uh, it feels like when you're hitting the notebook and writing down the, I mean, it feels like it's a, it's a natural fit, obviously, for distributed systems. But w when are, what are the kinds of problems that are a particularly good fit for that that kind of formalism? So I, I think anything dealing with concurrency, um, this, yeah, the, the techniques in here are really, really powerful. The, this TLA in particular is a really great set of tools for being able to reason about con like concurrent systems with lots of things happening in lots of different orders and, and the various interleavings that you have you have between them. Um, just to like give give a like sort of spitballed number of that, I've, I've got a model up here that I've been working on today um, that it has, oh, let's see, so it, it, at its widest point had like 86 distinct steps that it took and 3,252,318 different distinct vari variable values that it went and iterated over. So lots and lots and lots of different yeah. configurations of the system and lots of different things that it can go and do. I, I do think that um, it's not limited necessarily to concurrency. One of the nice things about um, having to specify a model formally is that you have to be very precise and very well formal about the things that you are trying to express in, in the model. You have to make sure, for example, that um, you know all of your, if you were doing pure 
pure TLA, Pascal will help take care of this for you, but in pure TLA, you have to be very explicit about all of your variables, even if they are not changing, have to be referred to properly in, in each predicate that you write and in each step that you take. And little, you know, it becomes apparent to you, I think, as you, as you write more of these things, what assumptions you are making and what things you are baking into, uh, you know, into the, into the system that you were designing. Oh yeah, I have expressed this in such and such a way that I'm assuming that like this particular thing is atomic or that this happens right. as a, you know, as a transaction or something like that. And um, just the act of writing that out, even if you just end up putting a comment there about, oh yeah, you know, we're assuming such and such. And so this condition has to hold in order for this to operate this way. Um, it can be very valuable, I think, to have your thinking clarified by, by tools that are, uh, that are gonna be strict with you about what things you say to them and what sort of notation you use and um, how, how you've actually gone and expressed everything. So even if you are not necessarily dealing with a you know, tremendously concurrent system, um, it can be, and you have a more you know, straightforward algorithm that you're working on, it can be very helpful to go through the, the specification exercise just as a way of being forced to think about your problem very clearly and precisely before you sit down to write any code. That's great. When I, I, I got to say, this is one something I love about Rust and the, the kind of the, the rigor in Rust is that it really attracts people who are attracted to other rigorous approaches. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that... It, this is where I mean I don't think it's an accident that uh, that Rust is kind of a, a common thing that is binding a lot of this, and you know if you're someone who uh, who likes the rigor and Rust, you're going to like the rigor found in these other formalisms as well. And then I, I mean especially with prop test being able to actually kind of pull that in and really synthesize that rain as you've done, it's, it's really uh, it's really great. I mean it allows us to not ju to just to generate more reliable more robust software to to to, uh, to verify that what we have written is what we intended to write and the, the it verifies what what are the way we're thinking about the system uh, it's just terrific stuff honestly and it's been I, I also have to say i love the fact that you are kind of coming from two different folkways if you will from microsoft and facebook two different companies that were uh, i think people don't realize the degree to which the hyperscalers really are these larger companies the fangs whatever you want to call them, whatever we call them these days, really are adopting a lot of these formalisms. And it's something that Microsoft has really been leading the charge on in a lot of ways. So uh, it's really been fun for me personally to see the way you're using it at Oxide and been super educational. And I, I need to find my own, just like it reminds me, Adam, of kind of like when I was looking longingly at Rust, trying to find the right problem to use Rust on. I feel like I'm looking for the right problems for to use prop test on or to use TOA plus on. So, um, yeah, totally. Because uh, I think uh, you, you've not used either of these either. No, yet, I haven't. Right? I've, 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 yeah, yeah. I'm already thinking about round tripping my way through through my dumb, you know, JSON schema stuff. Um, but yeah, definitely looking for the next one. Yeah, and I, I think that you know just to uh, to channel uh, Greg's younger self or being counseled by kind of a more senior engineer at, at Microsoft to really explore this stuff. I think it's going to be I, when I get the opportunity, I'm going to be or if and when you find the opportunity to use these formalisms, I want to really embrace it because I think it's going to be uh, it's really powerful stuff and it's just fun to see again well, what the two of you have done. So thank you very much uh greg rain thank you both for joining us this has been a lot of fun um and complete with some audio problems so just like just like old times here it's been <laughs> great thanks for having me
yeah, yeah thanks, for, thanks for having me as well it's a lot of fun you bet keep oxide and friends weird uh, as as matt was saying in the chat all righty well um uh, we will um we will see i i don't know if it's going to be next time or it'll be but i at some point adam i think we're going to have to revisit async i think uh, yes. rain we'd love to have you back for that as well um i think we're going to have to we, we we've had some uh some async challenges as of late <laughs> that i think I think it may turn into an async therapy session. So uh, maybe maybe we look to a an oxide and friends coming near you for for some async, async love slash therapy. All right, thanks everyone. See you next time. <laughs>